Father, thank you for this time that we have now to look at your word. We pray by your Holy Spirit that you would open our eyes to see clearly who Jesus is, what he's done, what it means to follow him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So page 981. When I was about 15, um, I was an RAF cadet through school. Uh, My time with the cadets was largely mediocre, I'd say. Uh, At one point at the end of a camp, I was awarded the wooden spoon for having the longest hair, believe it or not, and uh, the shortest trousers. And uh, it was always difficult to find uniform that actually fitted. But on, on one of those camps... We ended up doing a bit of climbing and abseiling. And uh, in the days, you know, well before health and safety and uh, all that kind of thing, uh, the instructors tried to get us to do a bit of Aussie rappelling. I don't know if you know what Aussie, Australian rappelling is. It's a kind of forward-facing abseiling. So there you go. That's not me, by the way, but... um, uh, you, you, you sort of lower yourself face down off the top of a cliff and then when you're kind of reached horizontal, you essentially run down the cliff face first and you, you're supposed to let the kind of friction in your belay device that you've got control of kind of stop you from just plummeting and, and sort of make it be about the right speed for you to kind of jog leisurely down the side of the cliff and arrive gracefully at the bottom. Well, the thing is, they make it look easy, and uh, when you're 15, you kind of assume you'll be able to do anything, and, uh, you know, you've spent a few hours of the kit climbing up and then doing some abseiling, and you're thinking, yeah, it all works, you know, and, and you watch a few other people go in front of you, and you think, yeah, it's okay, I can do this, and then, in, in my case, you come to the point where uh, you actually need to lean over the edge of the cliff And let me tell you, it is absolutely terrifying, or at least it was for me. And the the problem is, once you you get going, if you're actually going to do this, you have to commit, okay? You have to basically go for it. The worst thing you can do is to sort of start doing it and then stop. Because, uh, and, and the problem with that is that is exactly what your reflexes are telling you you ought to do at every point. Your body is telling you, stop, go back, stop, do not do this. This is a really stupid idea. And so the problem is, if you actually do that, uh, you get kind of pulled into the cliff and you just end up sort of dangling there. And uh, in my case, it became less of an Aussie rappel and uh, more me dangling at the end of a rope, limbs flailing, being gently lowered down the side of a cliff. So for me, there was a gap between what I thought looked fine in theory and what actually happened in practice. And actually, I guess that's something that happens to all of us in in different ways at different times. You know, we think it's going to be fine in principle. When it comes to it in reality, it's terrible. And that can be especially the case when it comes to living as a Christian. In principle, our faith is in Jesus. We believe he is who he says he is. We believe he died and defeated sin and death. We believe nothing can separate us from him. We believe in principle that... Trusting him and living his way is the right way to go. But then put us in the right set of circumstances 
And very easily that theoretical commitment to following Jesus and going his way goes out of the window. Do you recognize that if you're, if you're trusting Jesus yourself? You know, I want to talk about Jesus with my friends in principle, but in practice I clam up because I'm afraid of what they're going to think of me. I want to pray more, and I want to spend more time expressing my dependence on my Heavenly Father. But in practice, I get distracted, you know, by my phone or whatever, and I run out of time. I want to trust God with my family and have an eternal perspective on our lives. But in practice, I find it impossible not to be driven by the same short-term priorities of health and wealth that drive my non-Christian friends. I want to trust God with my friendships and my singleness, maybe. But in practice, I fear loneliness, and it causes me to make decisions I know probably aren't sensible and I later regret. I want to trust God with my finances and be generous, but in practice, I fear insecurity, and I prefer to run things my way. I want to trust God and work on my anger or my need to be in control or my tendency towards self-pity. And, you know, I pray about it and I, and I commit to how I'm going to respond to things in the future. But then in the heat of the moment, all that goes out of the window and I lose the plot. Well, that reading that we heard from Matthew, verses 22 to 36, is about that gap between theory and practice. We've seen over the last couple of weeks, if you've been with us, Jesus is the Lord who is gathering his church. That's what's going on in these chapters. We're heading towards the middle of chapter 16 and then beyond. <clears throat> At that point in the middle of chapter 16, Peter will proclaim that Jesus is both Messiah and Son of God. And Jesus' response then is that he is building his church. And more than that, that he's building it on Peter. On a weak, unimpressive, impulsive follower who will later deny him. And so we're seeing a number of things in these chapters, 14 to 17. Positively, we're seeing Jesus' true identity on display, what it means for him to be Messiah and Son of God. Positively, we're also seeing his followers and others respond to him with faith as he gathers his church. But the question then is, what does that faith look like? What does it mean? There are also more negative responses too in these chapters. We've seen a little bit of that a couple of weeks ago. But for, for this morning, it's those two more positive things. Who is Jesus? And then secondly, how does he respond to those who struggle to connect our faith in principle to our faith in practice? Okay, those are the, what we're going to see. So we're going to see two things that we need to, to bring out of these verses. We're going to see, first of all, that Jesus is Lord of the waves, verses 22 to 27. And then secondly, that Jesus is Lord of the wavering, those who waver, verses 28 to 36. So, first of all, verses 22 to 27, Jesus is Lord of the waves. Last time we saw Jesus spending some time alone in prayer, but he was... Uh, Followed by that massive crowd, and at least humanly speaking, the plans for that day changed. This time, Jesus is able to make the time to be alone, verse 23. And he prays on a mountain for much of the night. 
Meanwhile, his disciples are seeking to cross the lake in a boat. They're probably at the top of Lake Galilee, and there is a convenience to kind of crossing the lake uh, rather than trying to walk around it, but they struggle to make progress. The wind is against them. Now, another thing I did briefly as an RAF cadet is sailing, believe it or not, even though normally the RAF are more concerned with the sky. But uh, these days, as you may well know, if the wind is against you, it's still possible to kind of tack into the wind. It's quite difficult, but it is a thing that you do when you go sailing, as you may well know. But in those days, that kind of technique hadn't yet quite been invented, or at least it wasn't well known. And they would have relied on rowing with oars, when the wind was against them, trying to battle through the wind to get to where they needed to go. And if the wind is strong, obviously, that is incredibly hard. And so they're out in the middle of the night, and it's blowing a gale, and you can imagine this is not much fun. And then verse uh, 25, Jesus perhaps recognises that they need his help, and he goes to them, and shockingly, he gets to them by walking over the surface of the waves. Now, somehow, this is one of those miracles that seems particularly hard to to, to believe for some people. And so some people have suggested that maybe actually what was going on is there was a sandbar just beneath the surface that kind of went out all the way to near where the boat was. But actually, those who know about uh, very large lakes will tell you that when you're a considerable distance from land, the water is very deep, and it certainly is in Lake Galilee. And, you know, sandbars don't randomly form at that kind of depth. And, 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 And more than that, you know, the disciples' response shows that there is truly something remarkable going on. You know, what do they say? It's a ghost. They're wildly confused because this is so weird. And then, as we'll see in a moment, Peter tries to do the same thing. And yet, if there had been a sandbar there, actually, wouldn't the conversation have gone rather differently? You know, not you of little faith, why did you doubt? But you of little common sense, why didn't you just walk on the sandbar like I've done? But that is not what's going on here. Instead, they cry out in fear. This is something truly extraordinary and miraculous, just as we saw last time with the feeding. And uh, Jesus' reply is significant. What does he say? He says, take courage, it is I. Now, those words could equally be translated, I am. It is I, I am. And the thing is, this is on the one hand simply how you identify yourself in the Greek language that Matthew is writing in. You know, when you walk through the front door at home and someone calls out, who's that? I am is the correct response if you're speaking Greek. You can try that next time. But uh, there's more because I am is also the name that God revealed, his name when he, he made himself known to Moses in the book of Exodus. Who should I say has sent me, says Moses. I am who I am, says God. Tell them I am has sent you. And in calling himself that, God is saying he is the one who is. He doesn't depend on others for existence. Unlike anything else in the known universe, which is created by God, he is the creator. He simply is. Now, there's a lot more to say about him than simply that he is, that he exists of himself independently, but it is who he is. And so Jesus is using this kind of divine 
language. Does he mean to be heard like that? Well, look at what he's doing. There are, there are all kinds of echoes of Old Testament exodus going on here. Moses met with God on a mountain and then came down to lead his people through water, the parting of the Red Sea. So here's Jesus. Did you see he was on a mountain at the beginning of the, of the reading? Verse 23 comes down from the mountain and now he walks on water. And then we heard in the first reading from Job, from Job chapter 9, uh, this is a thing the Old Testament talks about God doing, that he treads on the waves. And Israel was essentially a sea-fearing nation, not a sea-faring nation. The sea represented chaos and disorder. And yet, they're told again and again, God rules over it and walks upon it. He's the boss over what they fear, do you see? And now here is Jesus saying, I am, using the name that God revealed and doing the same thing of treading on the waves. It is a claim and it's a proof to be the son of God who's come to save his people just as they've been waiting for. Now this is where Christian faith begins with recognizing who Jesus is and who he claims to be. Think of what we fear and what so often drives us, these things we were thinking about before. Christian faith begins with recognizing Jesus is Lord over the waves, over the chaos, over the disorder of the world around me and my own life and my own heart. He's got this, he's in control, he's the boss. He is Lord over the deadlines and the exam pressure and the work stress and the unreasonable expectations of others and the lack of time in the diary to get everything done and the housework and the family angst and the friendship feud and the cancer diagnosis and the loneliness and emptiness and anxiety and depression. He says to us, take courage. It is I, I am. I'm Lord of the waves, Lord over the chaos. Don't be afraid. The deadline and the consequences of missing it and the things out of our control that might make that happen, they're in his hands. The future that we fear or we dread or we long for, it's in his hands. The people that we love and the people that we struggle with, it's all in his hands. All that we struggle and fail to control that seems to be terrifying as well as what we perhaps mistakenly think that we can control. It's all under his lordship. He walks on the waves. Nothing is impossible for him. And even more than all of that, our sin, our rebellion against God that threatens to cut us off from him forever. He's defeated that too now in his death. <clears throat> he died that we might live. He's lord over all. So do not be afraid. This is the Lord of the waves. Maybe that's new to us and, and we're not completely there with trusting him. Well, he says to us, why continue to fear what you cannot possibly control yourself? Why continue to bear the consequences of your sin yourself? Trust me, he says, and I will deal with that. I'm the boss. But maybe this is not new to us. Maybe, again, in theory, this is exactly where we're at. 
But it's then in practice that we find that we know so hard to trust. Well, that is where we need to see what happens next. Because Jesus is not just Lord of the waves, he is Lord of the wavering. Verses 28 to 36. What do we make of what happens here with Peter? How we understand this depends on how we hear what Peter says in verse 28. Have a look at that. He says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Now, what is he doing? Is he being kind of rash and foolish, you know, to be able to presume that he might be able to do what Jesus has just been doing, kind of rushing headlong into this situation without fully thinking it through? That is how people sometimes hear this, but it's puzzling because Matthew doesn't tell us that he thinks Peter is being rash or foolish. The overall tone, in fact, appears to be positive. Because the end point is Peter and the disciples worshipping Jesus as the Son of God. Well, what about this then? Is Peter wrongly testing Jesus? You know, let me test if it's really you. So I'm going to walk on water to find out whether, you know, this is something that you are really able to make happen. Maybe you know the episode earlier in the gospel where the devil tempts Jesus and says to him, if you are the son of God, you know, throw yourself off the top of the temple. God will surely catch you. And Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You know, it's like saying, God has promised to provide for his people, so I'm going to blow all my life savings on a luxury holiday, and then we'll see if he really means it when he says he'll provide for us. See, that is putting God to the test. And if that's what Peter is doing here, it wouldn't be a positive thing. But again, the overall tone doesn't seem to be negative. Let's look more closely then, verse 28. What exactly is Peter not sure about? Is he doubting whether Jesus really can make him walk on water? Is that what he's doubting? Is that what he actually says? Well, the if clause, if you like. The the thing he says if about is what? Have a look at that. The bit he's not sure about, what he says is, if it's you, tell me to walk towards you. So what he's not sure about is not whether Jesus has the power to do this kind of thing. What he's not sure about is whether this ghostly figure walking towards them is actually Jesus whether Jesus is actually there, do you see? Because if he is there, there's no doubt that he'd be able to make Peter walk on water like he is. I mean, he's just fed 5,000 people. He can do whatever he wants if he's there. But is it him? That is the question. And, and, and seeing that helps us to see what Matthew wants his readers to get from this. <clears throat> because is this saying, well, if you have enough faith, you too can walk on water? So, you know, try it. Next time you, you know, go down to the ponds, Hampstead Heath. And uh, you don't have to get into the freezing cold temperatures as the temperatures plummet. No, if you've got enough faith, you really pray, you can just walk across it and then go home and tell all your friends. Well, there is no evidence at all that early Christians thought that if they had enough faith, they too would be able to walk on water. 
So one obvious example of this is, you know, the Apostle Paul gets shipwrecked at the end of the book of Acts. Okay, and, and they're in the middle of a storm. At no point do he or his companions think, okay, let's just pray and then let's get out and walk. That isn't what happens. And the point seems to be that that would be a very odd thing to do and to try and do if Jesus wasn't physically there right in front of you. Do you see? If Jesus is right there in front of you, walking on water, well, go ahead. But for the rest of us, Matthew seems to want to give us a picture of faith for us to learn from. And in particular, Jesus' attitude to faith that wavers. So is it Jesus? That is the question. And you can see Peter is half convinced that it's him and he gets into the water and he starts towards Jesus. But then this gap that we've been uh, talking about between what he believes in theory and what he's able to believe in practice begins to open up. Because what happens is, what does he do? He looks at the wind, we're told, and he looks at the waves and he begins to think, what on earth was I thinking? And he begins to sink. Now, what has gone wrong? Well, he's taken his eyes off Jesus and he's allowed his fears to take over in his head and in his heart. Don't we do the same so easily? We see the wind and the waves and we see our fears and they're all we can think about. We fear for the future, for our loved ones, for our well-being, whatever it is, and we start to doubt you know, is Jesus real? Is he really there? Can I really trust him? And we waver and we start to sink. Well, is there any hope then for those who waver on the waves, as we so often do? Well, look at what happens. Beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. See, with the Lord of the waves, there is always more grace. Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? Think of the promise he's made to his followers. The, the, the gospel ends with him commissioning his followers to go and make disciples of all nations. And he says, behold, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Like Jesus with Peter here, he is with us always. And so the question is, will we trust that he's got this so that we can take him at his word? We can trust him enough to risk those things that we fear. We can trust him enough to go his way on the big decisions and the small decisions even when it's hard or it's painful or even when it's just plain crazy in the eyes of the unbelieving world who work on a different set of assumptions about reality. He walks on the waves of the chaos of the week to come, of COVID, of our fears, of our worst nightmares. He's defeated sin and death themselves. The way it works is the more that we trust him when he calls us to go his way, the more we want to trust him. The key is recognising who he is and keeping our eyes on him. Do you see? That's what 
happened to Peter here? He stopped looking at Jesus. And that is what we need even in the midst of the busiest of chaotic days or weeks or months or years. Whatever they bring, he is there. He is Lord. So the key is to keep looking to him, to stay close to him in his word, with his people. Maybe COVID and lockdowns have started to convince us that, you know, Christianity is something we can equally do, you know, we can do equally well just by ourselves. In our own little bubble, away from his people, just catching up online or whatever. But no surprise that for many of us, the last 18 months has proved very testing for our faith. Because if we're not able to meet together in person and and not able to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and to encourage each other to do that, well, no wonder that we waver in the face of the chaos of our fallen world and of our sin. We may not think we have much to contribute. We may not think, well, I know, how is my presence among God's people an encouragement to them? But let's not undervalue the encouragement it can be, and it is. When others see us just continuing to trust Jesus in the midst of crashing waves, however big or small. And let's not undervalue the encouragement of us seeing others doing the same as well. And then along with all of that, let's not forget when we do fail and we do waver and we do take our eyes off Jesus and we do begin to sink, as it were, and we do begin to panic, there is always more grace. As Jesus will reach out and grab us when we cry out to him and set us back on our feet and say to us, you of little faith, why do you doubt? He is the Lord of the waves and the wavering. So let's trust him. Let's have a moment of quiet to respond in our own hearts to what he's saying to us this morning. Lord Jesus, Lord of the waves, Lord of the wavering, may our eyes be fixed, not on our circumstances, not on the crashing waves around us, the things we fear, 
things over which we have no control, may our eyes be fixed instead on you, the one who treads on the waves, and the one who gives grace to the wavering. Lord, save us. And we praise you for your grace in reaching out and grabbing us and taking us to safety. And so we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.